Thanks for choosing this BJSM podcast. I'm Karim Khan, the Editor-in-Chief of the BJSM, and it's a real privilege for me to be able to speak with Professor Nanette Mutri. She's from the University of Edinburgh, and she's a Professor of Psychology and Physical Activity, and she's in Vancouver working on the fourth edition of a book that's going to come out in 2020 called Psychology of Physical Activity. One thing you may not know is that she's a member of the British Empire. It's an MBE. It's kind of like a sainthood, really, in <laughs> our field. And uh, so, Nanette, lovely to be speaking with you today. Thanks for making the time. Uh, it's really a privilege for me to be speaking to you, Karam, uh, today here in very snowy Vancouver. I've enjoyed my visit very much. So you're famous for your commitment to walking um, personally and um, for health. So we'll just jump straight into the question saying, why are you keen on walking? And I've heard you say that it's the best buy for physical activity. So far away. Why am I saying that? I'm saying it because I think it has the biggest reach into the population. More people will be able to walk than do any other mode of physical activity that we might be promoting. And people can do that for active transport, they can do it for recreation, at the weekends, uh, in the mountains, on paths, and they can do it with their families. And almost everyone has the skill to walk, and we don't need any special equipment other than some good shoes and appropriate clothes for the weather. So it takes away some of the barriers that other modes of physical activity present. Sport has facilities, equipment, skill all involved. Many people don't like competition. Our audience works with Paralympians and I had the benefit of your talk so you make the point in that talk that there are other types of people who can't walk so if we briefly allude to them and maybe go in more detail later. In the world of physical activity promotion in general we have not taken sufficient account of people with disabilities and so whenever I'm talking to audiences about walking or indeed sedentary time we have to be very aware that some people perhaps are sitting in a wheelchair because they cannot walk. And what are they going to do about decreasing their sedentary time? So we must make very big effort to involve people with disabilities into our promotional efforts. Now, they can benefit, I think, from improved environment for walking, better pavements, better lit streets, better uh, curb rises so that it's easier for them, as it would be for prams, to get up and down off the pavements. All of these improvements for walking environment for most people will help those with disabilities too. So turning their wheels either manually or by a motor and being out in the fresh air is still a huge uh, health enhancement for them, although they're not doing walking steps in the way that the majority of the people will be able to do. Now, if we talk about the benefits, the sceptic would say, well, walking, you know, that's not that big a deal. Well, I think now over the past 20 years, really, since Jerry Morris and Adrian Hardman wrote their seminal paper, Walk to Health, in 1997, um, they showed that they had solid evidence even then that the level of activity achieved by walking does have significant health benefits. And that's been followed up by several reviews now, and most recently in the special edition on walking in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, we've got a raft of evidence that walking does indeed bring the health benefits that we're now well aware of for general physical activity. And for most people, walking will be a moderately intense activity. Um, for some people, it will be vigorous, though. Older people going up a hill, uh, walking a bit faster, this becomes vigorous for them. Now, many of my colleagues, uh, particularly the physiologists, want to say that the message we should have about walking is that it's good, 
but brisk walking is even better. And there's some evidence for that. Um, however, I'm a little skeptical about using that word brisk. And, and let me give you a few examples. I think this is about messaging. So if I think of brisk myself, now I'm in my late 60s, I am not walking as briskly as I used to. And I'm not walking as briskly as I do with my younger colleagues when we're going to lunch or taking a stroll at lunchtime. They're walking faster than me. But I don't think of myself as walking brisk, but I do know that my heart rate's taking up to the moderate level of activity for me. So I think the word brisk is an issue of interpretation and many people think, well, I'm not walking briskly, so I'll not get any benefit, but they will. I also think that these uh, pieces of evidence come largely from cardiovascular disease-oriented outcomes and consequent mortality. Now, we've just been reviewing for our book chapter um, an epidemiological study by, called The Hunt Project, and in that, they have an 11-year cohort follow-up showing that for depression as an outcome, rather than um, a physiologically oriented thing like cardiovascular disease, for depression as an outcome, intensity of activity does not matter. So whilst the physiologist might say it's brisk walking, that's important, and there's some evidence for that for cardiovascular disease, I don't think it's the same evidence for mental well-being. And in this case, in preventing depression, intensity didn't seem to matter from a very good epidemiological study. And so um, the messaging is important and the idea that it's not just about cardiovascular disease and mortality is important. We need to bring mental health into the equation as well. So we've talked about risk being suboptimal. What about the volume of walking? Yeah, well, I mean, here we've got, of course, the perfect step count idea for measuring walking. And I think the public generally have got it into their head that 10,000 steps is a good idea. Of course, there is no public health guideline around the world that says that. And many of the people looking at the evidence reviews say, well, we just don't know enough to say how much is good enough. However, I think that Katrine Tudor-Locke's really shown us that there's a range of step counts that will value our health. So they range from 7,000 up to 12,000. So 10,000 somewhere in the middle. Many people can achieve that, but some people could not. So it's out of the reach for many people to do that volume of steps. But if you are doing that volume of steps, you're very, very likely to be doing 150 minutes equivalent activity over the course of the week, which does, of course, match the public health guidelines. And I think what is very important now is that almost all the guidelines have lost the idea that you must do activity in 10-minute bouts. That has gone from the UK guidelines, the US guidelines, etc., and that means that every step counts, every minute counts. And that's a very encouraging thing for people who might do eight minutes from the car park to their office, but not 10. But they're doing that at either end of the day and they might do a, a walk around their uh, workplace at lunchtime and make up a good step count. But if it's only to be limited to 10 minutes, that would be much 
harder to do. And so I think all the new guidelines um, guide us towards a threshold and something's better than nothing and every step counts and it doesn't need to be done in 10 minute bouts. And these are short term games and that's what I mean about the messaging. That's what we should emphasize. That eight minute walk could give you a little bit of a boost at the start of the day, lift your mood, make you feel better, but we're not going to respond to that little bit of a eight-minute walk is going to decrease your risk of something down the line far away. We need to get much better at messaging these immediate responses that we might gain from even short amounts of walking in this case. Let's stick with mental health because that's one of the areas you're renowned for. You work on this book. What's been surprising in the last four or five years and perhaps 20 years in that field in terms of the benefits of walking and physical activity? Um, that's a good question. We've only just, in the 2018 edition of the British Journal of Sports Medicine, uh, completed a scoping review about the benefits of walking for mental health. And in the 1997 uh, Walking to Health paper, which that uh, special edition was uh, celebrating the anniversary of, we were pleased to see that we had moved on quite a lot because Morrison Hartman said, well, there's some indication that walking could help mental health, but not much evidence. So we uncovered a whole lot of evidence. We certainly know that walking can prevent depression. That's the strongest evidence. There's some helpful indications that it could also prevent some aspects of anxiety. You know, and anxiety is a complex topic with many subdivisions, but put together, we've, we've got some evidence there, but depression, clinical levels of depression, we've got more evidence for that. And on the other side of it, we've got evidence that people improve their self-esteem through uh, walking, that people feel better about themselves through walking. So some positive emotions have now come into the evidence base. So we're delighted to be able to report, yes, we've got an increase over the last 21 years of the evidence here, and it's looking uh, very good to promote walking for mental health benefits as well as physical health benefits. And given we're in conversation, and that gives me a chance to take a little sidebar to the problem of mental health, mental illness really, anxiety, depression, it seems to an unexpert observer that it seems to be more prevalent. You hear about university students and when I was growing up there didn't seem to be as much of this problem. Do you think we're diagnosing it more, talking about it more? Do you think there's societal pressures? Do you think the climate change disaster coming up is depressing people? I do think that mental health uh, is worsening and uh, it's not just an opinion but um, the burden of disease analysis now shows that depression will be the greatest burden of disease by 2030. Not cancer, not cor coronary heart disease, not any of the things we've been grappling with over the last 20 years, but depression. The question about why that is the case is much more complex. I could speculate with you on some of that. For example, we're more aware of it. People may present with the symptoms of it without feeling uh, a stigma attached to it. There might be overdiagnosis going on. There might be the issues of inequalities in society getting greater. So we do know that in societies in which the, risk, the rich are very much further away from the poor, there's a big gap in inequalities. We'll have more incidences of poor mental health. So there's the economics of how we live our lives coming into that. And you're right, young people taking action against the climate going, my goodness, our world is really being affected here. It would be 
very interesting to see if that is raising depression or if they feel that they're now taking action, being more in control and therefore not uh, likely to suffer mental health as a consequence. But that's a very uh, speculative point there. So no one really knows the mechanism behind the increase in the incidence of depression, but it is definitely there and societies are paying a bigger price now in terms of loss of quality of life, of more disability, of costs to health service as a result of people being diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Lynette, Greta Thunberg was on my mind because of your slide um, and you had the slide of her as the person of the year. So can you share with our listeners the context of that being in your talk? Uh, In the special edition on walking, the, the editorial piece talked about walking being a part of humanity's best guide to the future. And I was trying to unpick what that meant. So we've gone well beyond health when we're thinking about the benefits of walking. We're going towards what will make this a better world. And a very helpful guide within that is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And there are 17 of these goals. And in the Bangkok meeting of uh, the International Society of Physical Activity for Health, a treaty was worked out with the the participants and they suggested that many of these sustainable development goals could be helped by the improvements and increases in physical activity in its widest definition to include sport and uh, active travel and so on. And so we see that, of course, health and well-being is part of that, but a big part of it is improving the quality of life in cities, and action against climate change. And so therefore, of course, Greta Thunberg comes to mind. And I think many people will be motivated to change their behaviour towards more active types of travel, uh, like walking and cycling, because of their desire to stop contributing to what is a negative consequence for the climate. If we constantly drive, particularly short journeys, Uh, We're using up energy, we're adding to pollution, we're creating congestion and the air pollution issue is now becoming a very big one for people in cities with children increasing in asthma, for example. And the last time we heard of that was when we had the, the coal industry and everyone was burning that fossil fuel and or we had to stop that. We had to stop that doing that because of pollution. So we're now back at that level largely from... Um, what cars and lorries and buses put into the atmosphere. And so Greta Thunberg is a complete role model for people. And I think her move to help action against the detrimental effects of of countries uh, and climate and congestion and pollution will promote walking and cycling for people. Of course, you know, she presented us with an impossible-to-achieve role model of doing active travel across the Atlantic by sailing. So it's a big statement, and I think she also says every small step counts. So if people get that message and they say, well, I'm not taking the car to go to the shops, I'm actually going to get the bus to go to work because at either end of that I've got a little bit of walking and I don't need to contribute. The bus is more efficient than each person on their own in a car.
And cycling is also important, and I love cycling myself, but it isn't as big a public health impact as walking at the moment. It can't be, you know, just yet. We need much more infrastructure change for cycling to be as popular as walking could be around the world. We do see that in some Scandinavian countries. They have it sorted, but their cities have been getting built like that for 50 years and they purposefully went after the idea that the car, the bike, and the pedestrian would all be separated. And their cities tend to be quite flat. And so they've really got the culture of cycling happening. For them, it is a public health intervention. For most other countries, we're retrofitting uh, roads to be, to be safer for cyclists. So in the meantime, walking remains the best buy, although cycling is a good one too, because getting your everyday activity through your journey time, through everyday activities, is certainly easier than putting a big amount of time aside to go to the gym, to play sport, to be involved in recreational activities that require people and facilities and so on. Now, you did remind me when talking about, say, Denmark and uh, Sweden and uh, Amsterdam, of course, Netherlands, Scotland has done a great job on physical activity across the board. And let's just take a couple of minutes to highlight for our physio listener some of the things that Scotland have achieved and to bring those big picture things like the Bangkok and the Sustainable Deliberate Goals into the clinical sort of angle. What can a physio do in his or her practice? Good question. So uh, Scotland's a relatively small country, around 5 million people. And because of that, and because we have a devolved government, we can get all the actors that are needing to work together round a table together. And we've actually had physical activity policy in Scotland since uh, 2003. And part of that physical activity policy was to promote everyday walking. Uh, added to that physical activity policy, we then had a particular walking strategy for Scotland and an action plan to go along with it. Government funded um, an organisation called Paths for All and they promote walking leaders, they promote walking groups and they help people who are in the least likely circumstances to be able to do more walking. Now, over the piece, we are actually seeing now perhaps a modest increase in the overall physical activity levels in Scotland. We've gone from our national surveys, which is our indicator, from 62% in 2012 to 66% in 2018. Now, that doesn't sound a lot, 4% increase in, in the same measurement tool being used over time. However, it is a significant difference uh, and that the population level will be making a difference. And this is in the face of the new information we've had from uh, the World Health Organization who've been now tracking global levels of activity over time that developed Western countries, and we're in that group, are showing increases in inactivity. So in some senses, you know, holding your population levels stable if you're in the Western developed countries is a good thing, but actually showing modest increases is a great thing. And when we try to unpick what's going on in there, there's a good number of hints that walking is playing a significant part in, in how Scotland has managed to increase physical activity over time. And, and that is, we're still working on it. It's not 
clear, but walking is certainly an important way that Scotland has tried to promote activity. And because we are a small country, then Pass for All and other organisations have reached every town and every part, rural, city, with the message that walking is good for health. And I think it's commonly understood now in Scotland that that is the case. Nanette, by the way, stay on message, and it's a powerful message, so thank you. Can you just tell us a bit more about Paths for All, because not everyone has the benefit of the talk that I saw. Okay. Yeah, Paths for All is an organisation at arm's length from government, and their job is to promote walking. And so they have a variety of resources. They train walk leaders. Um, they operate walking groups in almost every town. And they have resources such as the community pedometer pack. Now, some of our work has shown the value of using a pedometer to promote walking. And we've worked out over time a little 12-week uh, plan in which people make very small steps in increasing their walking behaviour and monitor uh, using a pedometer. And this isn't a percentage increase. Uh, and such studies that have shown percentage increases don't appear to work so well. This is a, a chance for people to work out what their baseline step count is. Now, someone that drives to work and has an office job might only have 3,000 step counts. And from that baseline, they add in a small way over several weeks until they've got roughly equivalent to 3,000 more than they started with on each day. And that's you know going to equate up, if you do five days of that at least, to the 150-minute message overall. Other people will start to 8,000, but they may not be doing any particular attempts at walking uh, over the piece or walking intentionally, as we might say, because their 8,000 might occur because they're not confined to a desk and they have to walk around at work or they actually have to walk to the bus, but they're still going to add on to that level the same amount. So by the end of 12 weeks, again, they may have added 3,000 more to their baseline level. So Pass for All use that pedometer information that we've uh, established through our research over time and people can get a pedometer. Very useful little device. It's perfect for goal setting and it's perfect for monitoring how you're doing. And these two pieces of behavioral technique have been shown to be the most effective in helping people change behavior over time. And so the pedometers there, they're cheap, but people have phones and people have Fitbits. There's lots of ways to get step count feedback and that's I think what physios have to do refer people to how to increase their walking in a gradual way and Pathrol have provided that kind of advice in their community pedometer pack. While we're on the technology I think it's a good place to dive into it a bit more because it's, it's appropriate somewhere in this podcast so do you have recommendations do you think the sleep part is important with Fitbit um, which technology do you find might be something for people to consider referring people to use? The plethora of devices are, are amazing to me at the moment. Um, and, and in a sense, I'm a little skeptical of the high-end devices. They are the most expensive. And when I look around my friends and colleagues about who's wearing them, 
these people I have no concern whatsoever about in terms of their physical activity. They're doing what they always did, but they're getting a lot of feedback on it. So I'm much more concerned about people at the other end of the spectrum who don't have that motivation. And so I would go back to the very simple pedometer. You know, it's a $10, £10 kind of purchase, and that's a very cheap way to help people. Uh, more difficult to understand pieces of technology for people may take you off in the wrong direction, constantly giving you new goals. Whereas a pedometer allows you to just see some gradual increases over time and if used correctly, can motivate and give people feedback. And we don't need to be reaching a very high goal to get the benefit from that. P seeing that you've increased a thousand steps uh, in a day over the course of six, seven, eight weeks is a great goal. And the trick then is to sustain that rather than think, I've got to go to another level. I've got to get 2,000 more than I started with. So I, I, would, I really value the simple pedometer. Let's uh, leave it there on this first episode, Nanette. Otherwise, the young guys who run the podcast these days will kill me. <laughs> I've got a ton of questions and... Um, I'd love to talk more about uh, your great study on football fans. I, I will touch on the Daily Mile. Um, there's questions about food, so um, I'd love to follow on shortly. Thanks for choosing this BJSM podcast, and please share it with your friends or via social media if you're enjoying it. And our Twitter account is at BJSM underscore BMJ. 